You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you for the beauty of music by which we are able to sing back to you your word and to rejoice in the wonder of your creation and your giftedness. We thank you that we have the privilege of singing and praising and honoring you. And now, Lord, we look to your word that you might speak to us in it. It is your revelation of yourself to us. And so we would have no way of knowing you apart from your word. And we have no ability to understand it or to appreciate its spiritual dimension without the ministry of the Spirit of God. And so we pause now for a few moments to ask your blessing upon this time in your word and that you would give us clarity and alertness and open our eyes and our hearts before your word that we may be impacted by it and that you may speak to your people today through it. We have the confidence that when your word is rightly preached that your voice is rightly heard. And so we ask that that would be true here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know how annoying it is when you're reading a book and you get to the end of the book, you've finally turned to that last chapter and you read all the way through the chapter and you've read chapter after chapter of the book and then you get to the end of the chapter and you think, I'm done. And you turn the page and there's a chapter called The Conclusion. And Okay, well, you read The Conclusion because it's not quite right that you stop reading the book before you're actually technically done with the book. So you read The Conclusion, you get to the end, you think, I'm done. You turn the page, Appendix A. Appendix A. So you read Appendix A because if you're like me, you feel like you're being cheated. If you, you can't really say you finished the book unless you finished the book. And Appendix is part of the book. And why they don't make it a chapter, I don't know. But they make it an appendix. And so you read the appendix and you turn the page and Appendix B. And then C. And you think, man, am I ever going to get done with this thing? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? We finished the book of Acts and these last two sermons, last week and today, are kind of like those annoying appendices at the end of the book where you just think, okay, are we done? Um, Dave Rich asked me this morning before the service, he said, okay, now are you, you're done telling people that you're done with the book of Acts. This is really it. This is it. Today is the last appendix on the book of Acts. I'm pretty sure. I don't have any after this. But we need to wrap up some questions because we have a lot of questions. You get to the end of the book of Acts and is, and we've taken our time going through this and we've studied it deeply and we've looked at details and we've sort of fleshed out the implications and we get to the end of the book and and it raises certain questions because the book of Acts leaves us hanging. And we wonder to ourselves, what happened to Paul after those two years in Rome? Was he executed at the end of those two years? Or was he released? And did, was he, did he travel after that? Did he write any books after that? Did, did he ever actually stand before Nero during those two years? Because Luke tells us throughout the book all the promises that Paul got. Paul, I'm taking you to Rome. Paul, you're going to stand before Caesar, and, and he's promised that. Did Paul ever stand before Caesar before the end of Acts 28? What, what happened to Paul? Did, how was he executed? We, our curious minds want to know the answers to those questions. And so today I'm going to try and put together some of the pieces of that and answer some of those questions for you. And we're going to be drawing most of our information from the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So you'll need to have your Bibles open to that part of your Bible. And we're going to be switching back and forth. We're going to Looking at some things in 2 Timothy, looking at some things in 1 Timothy and Titus, and back to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus again. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth between those three books. 
If you were here for the very first sermon that I preached in the book of Acts, you remember me telling you about that Bible school professor that I had who had the delightful accent? And uh, he taught us the book of the ox of the apostles. Do you remember that? The book of the ox of the apostles. Well, one of the assignments for ox class was to write what we thought would be ox 29, and that was the conclusion to the book of Acts. One, that was at the end of the semester we were supposed to write out, here's, here's how we think from all of our vast knowledge of the New Testament, you know, first-year Bible school students, from your vast knowledge of the New Testament and from our study in the book of Acts, sort of put together what happened after Acts. And so I thought it would be fun to read that to you, what I had written back as a Bible school student 15 years ago with my, and knowing what I know now, I think it would be really humorous to read what I wrote back then. But somehow in the last 15 years, my ox notes hit the trash. And so <laughs> I did one better. I went to the, the teens in our church and I asked them to do me a favor. I said, from what you know about the book of Acts, will you write a conclusion to the book of Acts for us? And I would like to read some of those to you this morning. They did a phenomenal job. Out of the 40 that I asked, I got four back. And I'm going to read all four of those to you. One of them is a little long and I'm going to edit it. I asked Scott permission. His is the longest one. I asked him for permission to edit edit it for the length of, for the sake of time, and I'm not cutting out any of the funny stuff. Um, if, I don't know if you've had any conversations with our teens about the book of Acts, but their, their grasp of the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians, because that's what they're going through, their grasp of the book of Acts is better than any first year Bible school student I went to college with. They really, if you just get into a conversation with them, they, they know this book really well. So it was kind of a delight to read what they wrote. So I've got four of them here. I'm going to read Scott Diltz's first, and then I'm you're just going to enjoy this. We'll start with a funny one, then we'll sort of move towards the more serious ones. I wrote this, and I'm, I'm just, like I said, I'm editing out a couple things, and I'll let you know what it is that I'm editing out, because it's two pages of extremely small print. Here we go. I wrote this to share with the Kootenai Community Church Sunday School Incorrigibles. If someone else is reading this, that's why there are in, intermittent, incorrigible-esque remarks. Thank you for giving me your time. And if someone's reading this thing out loud, don't skip the random funny junk. Thanks. Paul, after the imprisonment in Rome. We know that Paul had further journeys after he was released from the prison in Rome in 63 AD. After his release, he wrote the epistle of Titus, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, not necessarily in that order, although 2 Timothy was apparently his last. This took place after the events recorded in Acts, so all of our information comes from various statements that Paul makes in his letters. Connor, pay attention and quit making that stupid comment. Noah, put the stick down. In Paul's letters are clues. I'm going to get catch stuff like this. This is the random thoughts of a teenage boy, I guess. In Paul's letters are clues that Paul may have traveled to some or all of the following places. Colos, Spain, Corinth, Miletus, Troas, Crete, Nicopolis, Philippi, Italy, Judea, Ephesus, and Macedonia. This allows for the possibility that Paul traveled to about as many diverse places as in all of his previous journeys combined. There are probably several possible ways one could reconstruct the sequence of these travels, which would not disagree with Scripture. Since I don't know which one is right, I'll just list what I know about the journeys. Thus, the references below are not intended to be chronological, although they all occurred after Paul's release in, from Rome in 63 A.D. and before his death in whenever A.D. Now, for, for a lot of this stuff, he puts in the Scripture references. Scott did his homework, and he came up with all of these details, and he put the appropriate Scripture references next to each of these. And I'm going to leave out the scripture references for the sake of time. In Philemon verse 22, Paul foresaw his release and told those in Coloss to prepare him a lodging. We know that Philemon was in Coloss because of Archippus, Onesimus, and others that Paul mentions with him. Also, while in prison in Rome, Paul wrote to those in Philippi that he may be coming to visit them. 
In Romans, Paul speaks of aspirations of eventually going to Spain. Big J has also covered this sentiment of Paul's on Sunday mornings. I'm assuming that I'm Big J. <laughs> Did Paul ever do this in his final years? Ooga booga. Sorry, just wanted to make sure you're paying attention. The Bible does not say whether Paul did or not. We do, however, have the account of the third century author Clement of Rome regarding Paul, quote, and he's quoting now from the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, chapter 5, quote, after preaching both in the east and west, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the west and suffered martyrdom under the prefects, end quote. The extreme limit of the West at that time had been Spain, but who knows, though, maybe America wasn't founded by Columbus. At some time after being released from the prison in Rome, Paul went to Corinth and Miletus. He also went to Troas, Crete, and Nicopolis for the winter. Paul was obviously tired of voyaging around in the winter months. After all, look what happened the last time he tried that. He got shipwrecked and bitten by a poisonous sniper. Paul... <laughs> See, it's comments like that that make it worth paying up, uh, showing up every Sunday. Paul leaving Titus in Crete must have been during a period of unimprisonment after 63 AD because Paul did not visit these places during his first three journeys. There's no mention of Titus or any of the preaching on Crete in Acts 27 or the voyage to Rome. Paul says he will send Artemis or Tychicus to Titus. He tells Titus to come to Nicopolis where Paul has determined to spend the winter. The letter to Titus was probably written around 64 to 65 AD. Paul fought vampires here, plain and simple. He was also the one who struck Dracula through the heart, Connor quitcafying and being disruptive. And then I left out a bunch of stuff about the author to Hebrews because he, he has some arguments that he bases upon the book of Hebrews. If Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, which is contested, and I don't personally think he was, um, what you can learn from those different references in there. Paul had told Timothy to stay and teach in Ephesus when Paul went to Macedonia. So 1 Timothy was written around 64 to 65 A.D., during a period of liberty after Paul's Roman house arrestment of 61 to 63 AD. Paul said he was hoping to come to Timothy in Ephesus shortly, but may have to tarry long. Timothy was in Ephesus where he received both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was apparently written from prison where Paul was ready to die. Perhaps this was why he said he was going to tarry long back in 1 Timothy, possibly in 66 AD, yet he asked Timothy to come to him before winter. So Paul died. It happens to the best of us. But keep reading. And then he includes in here a section about some excavation that took place at St. Paul's Basilica uh, in the city of Rome where they excavated a, a tomb with an inscription on a slab and they think that that's possibly the tomb of the Apostle Paul. And you can research that for yourself online. It was, it was all good, what he wrote. It's impossible to say whether this is the actual tomb of the heralded Apostle Paul, but it certainly is possible. The only thing we have to indicate the Apostle Paul's martyrdom up until this point was the Christian tradition which said he was beheaded for some unnamed offense. I don't think Paul was martyred. Look at all the times Paul could have been killed. He could have been killed by the Jews any number of times or by the Romans or by snipers or by traveling bandits or by really bright lights or by drowning or by an incident of random violence. He might even have fallen from someone's roof that didn't have a city ordinance parapet. He was in constant physical danger and yet he never died in the book of Acts, not once. He always just managed to snatch life from the jaws of death. I think it would have been a sad ending to an otherwise triumphant tale of personal sacrifice and dedication for Paul to have been off so offhandedly. I think Paul survived and died a nice natural death at the hands of something a little more pleasant like chronic pneumonia, amoebic dysentery, or spontaneous combustion, but not of an execution at the hands of the Roman government. However, Nero was in full swing at this point, blaming the Jews for every single thing that went wrong in his empire. 
It's also possible that Paul could have been caught by the Romans once Nero went postal on them. Paul could have been hauled off to the Colosseum for cuddle time with lions or bears and gladiators. Maybe he was run over by a fat baker in a yacht-drawn cart. Who knows? Well, God does, but that's beside the point. And since Darian is cool, you guys can ask her what she thinks and go with that. The end. Now, other than the humorous stuff that's in there, and you'll have to pardon that because that's Scott, a lot of that stuff, friends, was spot on the money. It was really good. Now, let me give you the next one. This one comes from Nikki Jensen. She writes, and this is shorter, thankfully. You couldn't do all four of those. After two years had passed, Paul was released by Nero and immediately began another missionary journey. While on his journey, Paul visited Colos, Ephesus, Crete, Macedonia, Corinth, Nicopolis, and Spain, where he stayed for two years. In Ephesus, Paul was arrested and taken to Rome, where he stood trial again before Nero. His travels lasted from about 62 A.D. to 65 A.D. During this time, Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The second imprisonment was obviously more severe than the first. We know this because Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Only Luke is with me. He was not only chained, but was also treated as a prisoner. Paul says, I am suffering even to the point of being in chains as a prisoner, 2 Timothy 2.9. In A.D. 67 or 68, Paul died by decapitation according to tradition. Some of the Apostle Paul's last words which explain his heart attitude are, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now the next two are written as if you would find them in your Bible. So there's sort of biblical language and it's written from the third person perspective, not so much like a documentary, but more like you would expect to read it if it were actually in the book of Acts. This one's from Connor Curry. So Paul stayed in Rome for two years, making tents and discipling all who came to him. After five years, Emperor Nero started going crazy. He started persecuting Christians, and many were dying at his hands. Since Paul had already been before Nero once, he was a prisoner of Rome. Nero called Paul in for trial. When Paul got there, Nero told him, You're permitted to speak for your defense. So Paul started, Members of this council, I would like to say that I have done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment unless you count being a Christian an offense. I'm guilty of that offense. Otherwise, I have done nothing wrong. Nero then pronounced Paul guilty and sent him back to his house and told him that he had seven days until he died. Paul went home and wrote a letter to John Mark asking that he come. He also summoned Timothy and Titus to him and he discipled them. Dr. Luke was also there and he stayed with Paul. Seven days passed and Paul was taken under Roman guard to the execution platform on the outskirts of the city. Nero was there and told Paul that he could speak to the crowd. So Paul turned and said, People of Rome, I am a bondservant for the Lord and I am dying because of that but I count myself lucky because I'm going to heaven to be with the creator of the universe. I have run the race set for me, and I have run it to its fullest. But today I would also like to tell you about the gospel. We are all sinners and in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior, and I implore you to trust him as your personal Savior. That is all. The executioner then laid Paul's head on the block, and with the swish and thud of an axe, the Apostle Paul was on his way home. And the last one is from Becca Brown. Caesar, to escape blame for certain crime, turned the anger of the populace upon the Christians. The believers suffered under many persecutions by his hand. The apostles, too, suffered in this great tribulation. After a long delay, Paul stood on trial before Nero. All the documentation, after being recovered from the storm, was read through many times to be sure of its validity and truth. His accusers stood up against him with many false testimonies and witnesses, but because their arguments were examined and cross-examined so heavily, they were supposed to be false. Many were in favor with Paul, believing that he was innocent of any crime. On one evening, while Paul was teaching in his house to a number of believers, two of Nero's personal guard brought Paul word of his sentence. The offense he had committed remains unknown to any. He was taken out of the city to the place of execution, and after saying a prayer, gave up his neck to the sword. 
At the time, Peter was preaching the word in Rome and teaching the gospel to all who had an ear to hear. And being found on a street corner, proclaiming loudly the message of salvation, he was arrested and taken to prison. After having been imprisoned for some months, he was taken to a certain place near the Ostian Way and there crucified. But because he thought of himself not worthy to die as our Lord, the soldiers had him hung upside down in mockery. Many other tortures were wrought for the believers, and a great number gave their lives in Christ's name. But where the sword triumphed, the word prevailed, and the name of Jesus and his salvation spread more rapidly than ever before. I can guarantee you that all of those, including Scott's, was better than anything I wrote in my first year of Bible college. And I thought that that would kind of be fun for you to listen to how they would have written the end of the book of Acts. Now, what do we know for certain happened after the end of the book of Acts? Well, for certain, there are just a few things that we know, and we can sort of put together the pieces. Now, is it really that big of a deal that we come to some conclusion about what happened after Acts? Well, it is for a couple of different reasons. Let me give you a couple of reasons why this is important. First of all, there are fringe wingnut groups out there who trace their origins back to something that Paul did between his release in Rome and his death. They never trace it back to anything he did during his life, of which we have documentation, but they go back to something he did, some church he founded, some city he visited, that's all speculation. I had one of these guys call me up the other a month and a half ago. I guess some of the weirdest things happening to me, but he called me up and he began to tell me all about how their movement was traced all the way back to Paul founding churches in Spain, and he admitted to me, even though we have no documentation for this, so we accept it as an article of faith. Wow. How do you get that? Uh, second of all, if you have Paul dying at the end of Acts 28 and not being released, then somehow you have to explain 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because you can't fit those into the Acts narrative. So what do you do with those three books? Well, I'll tell you what most people do. They say Paul was executed in 63 at the end of Acts 28, and then after that, somebody who called himself Paul wrote those epistles. They're not written by Paul, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, but they may reflect some things that Paul said. Now, you can imagine how that kind of a perspective comes in when you begin dealing with passages like women exercising authority over a man and church discipline and the qualifications for elders. I mean, after all, if Paul didn't write those epistles, then let's not take them seriously. So it is important that we are able to put together at least somewhat a chronology or something that we know happened after the book of Acts. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do to you, do for you. Have you ever put together a puzzle? You know, you take the puzzle out of the box, you dump it out, and what's the first thing that you do? You turn over all the pieces, right? And then you set the box lid up, and then you begin to sort of separate the pieces into groups. And so you put all of the pieces of the, the bush over here and the pieces of water and the pieces of sky, and this looks like a road, and, and here we have a, the side of a red building, and so you put them all together, and as you start putting together the pieces, you say, okay, we've got a red building. It doesn't look like a barn, which I first thought. Instead, it looks more like a covered bridge, one of those old-fashioned covered bridges. Now, from what I've just described to you, even there, you have a picture in your mind, don't you? You have a picture of a red covered bridge going over some water in the sky in the background, trees growing up, and some pieces of road. Well, our methodology today in putting together the pieces of what happened after Acts is going to be similar to putting together a puzzle. We're going to flip over all the pieces and we're going to look at them. I'm going to try to group them sort of into groups and then I'm going to try and put together all of the picture. Now, we don't have all of the pieces, so there are some things where our sanctified imagination is going to come into this equation. But let me just give you a warning. Sanctified imagination always must bow the knee to Scripture. So even when we're imagining things and trying to fill in the pieces in our minds, we have to make sure that we don't go beyond what is written or contradict what is written. And we are given, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, a tremendous amount of details about what happened after that imprisonment. 
So the first question we need to answer is, did Paul suffer one imprisonment or did he suffer two imprisonments? In other words, is the imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts Paul's only imprisonment and was he executed at the end of that? Or was he executed without an imprisonment after that? Or was Paul imprisoned twice? I'm going to argue that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned twice. That he was released at the end of Acts 28 and that he traveled around a bit and then he was arrested again and he was imprisoned a second time. Now we can come to this conclusion. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and we are going to notice how Luke, sorry, Paul in 2 Timothy describes an imprisonment that is something totally different than what Luke describes in Acts 28. And so as you read these side by side, you can only come to the conclusion that Luke and Paul are not describing the same thing. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, let me remind you of Paul, what Paul's imprisonment in Rome was like in Acts 28. You remember he was a, a fairly easy person to find. Why is that? Because he was renting an apartment. I mean, downtown Rome on the street of, on the corner of Main and First, there was Paul's apartment and people were coming to him in large numbers. They were leaving. They came freely. His friends came freely. People could easily find him. He was well known. And Luke says at the end of Acts 28 that Paul was preaching the word unhindered, without any interruption, without any hindrance, and the word of God is going forth freely. He was an easy individual to find because people knew where he was at and they were coming. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 16, Paul mentions a visit that he got in prison from a man named Onesiphorus. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me. That means he put forth a tremendous amount of effort and diligently sought me until he found me. And the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, well, Paul describes somebody who, when they came to Rome, couldn't find him. Does that describe, does, does Second Timothy chapter one sound like somebody who had an apartment and people were coming and everybody knew where he was at? It sounds to me like somebody who's buried deep in a Roman prison cell and is very difficult to find. And Onesiphorus, when he came to Rome, he eagerly searched out Paul and diligently put forth the effort until he finally located him. It's a different imprisonment altogether. The second difference was Paul in Acts 28 was enjoying some rather comfortable conditions. He had his own rented apartment. He had to stay in his apartment, but it doesn't sound at all like he was uncomfortable. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want you to read a couple verses in chapter 4. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus. And look at verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, winter's coming. And I want you to make every effort, spare no expense to get here before winter. And when you come, I want you to stop at Troas and pick up my coat. Does that sound like a guy who's enjoying comfortable habitation? It doesn't at all, does it? It sounds to me like a guy who is sitting in a cold Roman cell on a cold floor and looking at spending a cold winter without his coat. So Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, look, spare no expense. Come before winter and bring me my coat because winter is coming and I'm going to freeze to death in this prison if I don't have a coat to put on. So people couldn't find him. He was uncomfortable and in horrible conditions in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy, Paul has a different attitude towards his release. If you read the book of Philippians, and I'm, I'm not going to read it, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, Philemon verse 22, Paul writes to them and he says, I'm expecting to come to you very soon. Those books were written during the first imprisonment, probably toward the end of that two years. And Paul was looking at his release and saying, look, I'm about to be released. I'm fully expecting to come to you. Pray that that would happen. And when I'm released, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you in Philippi to 
Philemon in Colossae was planning on coming. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 6. Now, do these words sound like the words of a man who is expecting a soon release? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Does that sound like somebody who is expecting release? No, friends, these are two totally different imprisonments. And the second imprisonment is extremely harsh, extremely brutal. He is extremely lonely. If you read the epistles Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon that he wrote from Rome during those two years in Rome, you read about all of these friends, Erastus and Timothy and Tychicus and Titus and Aristarchus and Gaius and all of these people who came to him freely. He had friends with him all the time. And then you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And what does he say? Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Two totally different imprisonments. So let's start putting together some of the pieces. Now we've sort of created a construct now. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were written between the two imprisonments. Now, 2 Timothy actually during the second imprisonment. 1 Timothy and Titus written after the release from Rome in 63 AD. So let's ask ourselves, what cities would Paul have visited? And he gives us all of the clues. And, and look at all the cities that he lists. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're still in the process now of kind of flipping over pieces of our puzzle and we're putting them in categories. And then when we're all done with this, I'll put together the whole picture for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now we can glean from verse 3 that Paul visited two places. What were they? Ephesus, where he left Timothy. And when he left Ephesus, where was he going? Macedonia. Now near Ephesus was also Laodicea and Hierapolis, two cities that Paul mentioned in one of the epistles that he wrote in Colossians. Also in Macedonia was a city at Philippi where Paul said, I'm intending to come to you in Philippi. So we can probably glean safely that Paul visited at least two cities for sure, Ephesus and Philippi. Now turn over to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Verse 5, Paul says to Titus, For for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now where did Paul visit? Crete with Titus. And here's what's interesting. Crete's a little island. It's kind of, if you were to sail from Rome, suppose that Paul was released from Rome. If you were to sail from Rome down around the southern end of Italy and around the bend there, he would have, a natural stopping place would be the island of Crete. And apparently Paul, sometime after that first imprisonment, landed on the island of Crete and went from city to city and evangelized and planted churches because then later on he writes to Titus and he says, look, I left you in Crete for this reason. Appoint elders in every city just as I directed you. So when Paul left the island of Crete, he left Titus there to sort of wrap up the ministry there. Turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So we know he visited Nicopolis. Now turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Actually, skip chapter 1, just turn to chapter 4. And chapter 1, verse 16 is the reference of Onesiphorus ministering to him at Ephesus. And some people say that was a second visit to Ephesus. So we have at least, we think, two stops in the city of Ephesus. One mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, one mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. So we know he visited the city of Troas. Look at verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. So we have quite a list of cities already, don't we? Ephesus at least twice, 
likely Philippi, the island of Crete, the city of Nicopolis where he spent a winter, Troas, and Corinth, and Miletus. So those are all the cities where Paul visited. Now, do you want, do you notice something as we go through this? Do you notice what Paul is doing? As he's traveling to each one of these cities, what is he doing? He's leaving somebody behind. Have you noticed that? So and so I left here. Uh, Titus, I left you in Crete. Timothy, he left in Ephesus. Carpus, he left at, uh, or uh, Erastus, he left at Corinth. Trophimus, he left at Miletus. What Paul is doing is going to all of these cities that he had founded where he had churches that he had ministered in. And it's like he's spreading out his ministry team all over the Mediterranean area, isn't it? That's what Paul's doing. Now, we have no idea how long Paul spent in any of these cities. And we have no idea what order he visited the cities in. If you take that little map on the back of your bulletin insert, and you look at that, and you were to go through and locate all of the cities that we just listed from those pastoral epistles, you could do sort of a connect the dots from Rome, you know, Rome, Crete, and Ephesus, and you would kind of come up with a path, if you just did some connect the dots, you would come up with a path that was very similar to the first, to the second and third missionary journeys that Paul took to all of those cities when he founded those churches. But he may have zigzagged all over the Mediterranean, we just have no way of knowing what order he visited those cities in, but we do know that he visited those cities. Now, for those of you who are still awake, you're asking a question, a very logical and a very good one in your mind right now. Now, see, I know that the fun part of, of putting together the puzzle is not flipping over the pieces and putting them in categories. The fun part's actually putting it together. So hold tight. We're going to get to that, okay? Here's the question you're probably asking. Did Paul ever get to see Spain? Did Paul ever get to see Spain? We want to know that, don't we? The only reason we know that it was on his agenda is because he mentions it in Romans chapter 15, he says, I'm planning to come to Rome to visit you on my way to Spain. I want to go preach the gospel in Spain. So did Paul ever get to see Spain? Did he ever get to the westernmost edge? That was his heart's desire. That was his drive. Did he ever see that accomplished? Well, let me give you three observations, and then I'll sort of inject my sanctified speculation into the mix a little bit. Here's my first observation. There is absolutely no evidence, archaeological, literary, or historical evidence whatsoever that Paul ever got to Spain. None whatsoever. There's no documents from his lifetime that place him on the western edge of the Roman Empire. Nothing that he wrote, nothing that anybody else wrote. There's tradition, there's comments by historians, there's things like this. Maybe they were just drawing off of what Paul said, that his desire was to go to Spain. But we have no solid evidence. All of the evidence that we have says that he went east, not west. He went toward Troas and Miletus and Ephesus and Crete and all of the cities that he had visited on the eastern side of the empire. Now, somebody may say, but yeah, he could have gone east and visited all those cities and then gone all the way back across the Roman Empire to Spain and planted the gospel there and planted churches and evangelized and then been arrested and then come back to Rome where he was executed and tried and imprisoned a second time. Is that possible? Well, here's my third observation. There's really not enough time for Paul to do all of that. Between the time that he's released at the end of the book of Acts and we know he died in at the latest 67, maybe earlier, maybe 66, possibly 65, he just doesn't have enough time to do all of those travels and get to Spain and get back. He's not Superman, he's just Paul. He's an incredible man, but not able to do all of that. So the long and the short of it is I don't think Paul ever saw Spain. Here's my sanctified imagination. When Paul wrote to the Romans and said, my plan is to come to you and then I'm going to Spain, that was six years before the end of Acts 28. Six years. I think that five years spent in the custody of a Roman prison sitting in the city of Rome made Paul alter his plans. And I think, my suspicion is, that when Paul was released, he said, look, I've got one last hurrah, one last trip. I've got two choices. I can take the gospel west and plant it in Spain, 
Or I can go back to some of these churches, some of whom, like Ephesus, he knew were having a hard time and had fallen to false doctrine. I can go back to those churches and establish them and spread out my ministry team and get rid of all these guys that I've discipled and trained and put them in churches and plant them and make sure that the gospel's firmly established where I've already planted it. I think that's what Paul did. I think at the end of his imprisonment, he just says to the Philippians and to Philemon, look, I'm planning to come to visit you. I think he ditched the plan to go to Spain. I think he said, I've got one last hurrah, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to visit my friends and make sure that everything is firmly established before I go. I think that's what Paul did. don't think he ever saw Spain. Now let me put all of this together. Time to start putting together the pieces. Let me construct for you a scenario that I think is very probable and very workable. And I'll let you know when I begin to interject some of the sanctified speculation into this mix. It would make sense if the Apostle Paul, when released from the prison in Acts 28, Luke was just finishing up the book of Acts. He put the finishing touches on that. That was the end of it. Paul took off with Luke, Timothy, Titus, and sailed down around the southern tip of Italy, landed at the island of Crete. And while Paul was there, he said, look, I want to evangelize in some cities. So he evangelized through the island of Crete, established the gospel there, and then he left Titus there. And he said, look, you finish up the work. I'm going on with Timothy and Dr. Luke up to Ephesus. So he left Titus on the island of Crete. He sailed up to Ephesus, stopped in there. And when he got there, he found that his worst suspicions had come true. And that was that the church had fallen to false teachers, namely Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he names in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The church had fallen to false teachers. And Paul began working in that church to straighten things out. He got ready to leave, and while Paul was there, he could have visited Philemon and Colos, it was a neighboring city, and other cities around there, which he lists in some of the other epistles. He leaves the city of Ephesus and leaves Timothy there to finish straightening things out in that church, and he sails to Macedonia. He gets in Macedonia, visits the city of Philippi, comes down through Macedonia into Achaia, visits the city of Corinth, he gets to Corinth and he writes the letter to first to Timothy, which we know as First Timothy, and he gives Timothy instructions on what to finish doing in the city of Ephesus. Then he writes the letter to Titus, and this would both be about 64 A.D. He writes the letter to Titus and says to Titus, look, this is why I've left you there, appoint elders in every city, here's what to do on the island to finish up my work there. He sent that letter by the hand of Artemis or Tychicus with the instruction to Titus, look, winter's coming, When you get this letter, finish your work, and then come to me at Nicopolis. Tychicus and Artemis will take over for you. I'm going to spend the winter at Nicopolis. Nicopolis was just a little ways northwest of the city of Corinth. So he spent the winter at Nicopolis. Titus met him there. And then when Paul left Nicopolis, he traveled back through those cities, possibly stopped in Ephesus again. And then something happened, I think. That's where my speculation comes in. At the city of Troas. So you should be open to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to finish up with some verses here and we're going to trace Paul's life to the end. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now something happened between Paul's first arrest and his second arrest. And here's what happened. This is history. For those of you history buffs, you're going to love this. For those of you who are not history buffs, you can tune out for a couple minutes. On the night of July 18th and 19th in 64 AD, a fire broke out in the city of Rome. Now Nero was nowhere near the city of Rome at the time. He was off in another city. He heard that Rome had caught fire. He came back to the city of Rome. According to some history sources, he did everything he could to put them out. According to other history sources, he did everything he could to fan the flames. And uh, Rome burned for five days until three of its districts were, three of its 14 districts were completely destroyed. Seven of them were severely damaged. Well, after the fire finally got put out, rumors started to spread that Nero himself had started the fire or had the fire started in his absence so that he could burn the city of Rome and then rebuild the entire city after his own designs. 
And you know how rumors are, once they get started and they just keep going and spreading and getting bigger and bigger, well, Nero needed a scapegoat. Who's a good candidate? Well, how about a class of people who are universally hated by almost everybody because they were socially outcast? They called them Christians at the time. So Nero started the persecution of Christians and blaming the burning of the city of Rome on Christians in order to take attention away from himself. And thus he launched in 64 AD, just a couple weeks after the fire, the, the first institutionalized Roman government persecution of Christians since the Christian church had started. The first actual government-sponsored persecution. So Nero would take Christians and he would tie them up in animal skins and he would send them out to the lions and to the wild dogs. He began uh, dipping them in tar and putting them on stakes and burning them alive to light his garden parties. He put them into the ring with gladiators and, and lions and did this for sport. That's what you call living your best life now, I guess. Uh, that's what Nero did to the Christians. That happened between Paul's release and Paul's arrest. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. I want you to notice a couple things. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now, I believe that Paul was arrested at Troas. Why do I say that? Something happened at Troas that made Paul leave behind all of his books and his coat. Something happened there that he did not even have time to get his personal belongings. What happened to Troas? What would cause the Apostle Paul to have to leave that city when he was visiting there, to have to leave that city in such a hurry that he couldn't grab his books and he couldn't grab his coat? Well, it's very possible, I think, that the Apostle Paul was arrested at Troas. And I think that not only that, but he was arrested and he was quickly skirted off out of the city, off to Rome, to face trial and to be executed. And furthermore, I suspect that Alexander the coppersmith had something to do with Paul's arrest. Why is that? Because immediately after mentioning Troas and having to leave Troas and leave all of his books and his coat behind, what does he say? Timothy, when you go to Troas to get my books and to get my coat, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. Why does, why does he come into the equation? I think that my suspicion is that Alexander the coppersmith had something to do with Paul being arrested and that he was arrested at Troas, and he had to leave so quickly, he had to leave everything behind. So when he writes to Timothy, he says, that's where I left everything. So when you come to visit me, go back and pick up all my stuff and bring it with me when you come to Rome and bring John Mark and come here quickly. Now, a lot of what I've just given to you is, I admit, speculation. None of it contradicts the record of Scripture, but that's my hunch. We don't know for certain where Paul was when he got arrested. We don't know for certain who it was that was instrumental in making that happen. But what I've offered to you certainly fits the record of all of the pastoral epistles, at least all the details there, and there may be more stuff there. Now, where do we go from here? Kids are saying, hopefully, home. Well, we've answered the question of, was there one imprisonment or two imprisonments? And we've put together all of the pieces and reconstructed the story to you. What happened when Paul got back to the city of Rome and he was in prison? Obviously, miserable circumstances. I want you to look at what he says in verse 16. Paul stood trial. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, and may it not be counted against them. Why were there no Christians to stand next to Paul during that trial? Government persecution. Christians were in hiding. They were underground. Everybody was gone. There was nobody. Now, who was there? Luke was there. Luke. Let me tell you something. Luke is another one of these guys that I want to meet first thing when I get to heaven. You know why? I want to meet the guy that stood next to the Apostle Paul right to the bitter end. 
I want to meet the guy whose loyalty was so intense, whose friendship was so deep, whose love and admiration for this man was so strong that he was willing to walk with Paul to the gallows. That's who I want to meet. That's a friend. That's a loyal man right there, Dr. Luke. Luke is with him, but everybody else has deserted him. But look what Paul says in verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The lion's mouth is a, a way of referring to, uh, to uh, Nero. And Paul is saying, when I stood trial on my first defense, nobody was there. The Lord was there. Now Luke was there. The Lord was there. The Lord stood by me, Paul says. And he strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully accomplished. What is Paul talking about? What proclamation had to be accomplished in Nero's presence? The gospel proclamation. Because the Lord had promised him, Paul, you're going to stand before Nero. Now, I don't think he stood before Nero in Acts 28. I think he was released before he ever stood in Nero's presence. And he traveled, and then after he was arrested, he came back, he stood trial, he stood there and he preached Christ to this madman, Nero. And when he gets all done, he gets put back in his cell, and Paul says, the Lord rescued me from the lion's mouth. But listen, the proclamation has been fully accomplished. That is why Paul could say, I fought the fight, I have finished the course, I have run the race, Timothy, I'm done. I have nothing else to do. Why? Because the one thing that he was waiting to have happen, stand in the presence of Nero and preach Christ, he had done it. And when he was done, he said, that's it. That's the course. From the Damascus Road to Nero's throne room. And now I've done it in Nero's throne room. And now I can go home. Boy, man, at that if the idea of the Apostle Paul preaching Christ to Nero does not send shivers down your spine, there's something wrong with you. That is incredible. That is just unbelievable. But Paul knew, ah, all the Gentiles have heard. The proclamation has been accomplished. I've finished what the Lord set out to me to do. I have finished what the Lord promised I would do. That is why he says in verse 6, Timothy, the time of my departure has come. According to history, according to tradition, the Apostle Paul was convicted of an offense. We don't know what it was. Likely just the offense of being a Christian. And he was led a couple miles outside the city of Rome along the Ostian Way, and he was beheaded. As a Roman citizen, he couldn't be tortured, and he couldn't be crucified. So he was beheaded. Dr. Luke was with him all the way up until the end, maybe as a fellow prisoner. But Luke was there with the Apostle Paul all the way to the bitter end. And he gave up his head. Paul says in verse 6, and I want your eyes to just focus on these words for a second. We're going to close here. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. The word departure there is a very colorful, very vivid Greek word. Analusis is the word. It was used in a few different ways in Paul's day. All of them very beautiful ways of using this word. Let me give you the four ways it was used. Analusis was used to describe taking a yoke or off of a beast of burden or unhooking him from a cart or from a plow. He would analusis the animal. Friends, that, that's how Paul viewed death, right? Getting the burden off and getting the yoke. I'm, I'm, the yoke is being taken off of me. No more toil. When you took the yoke off the burden of beast, you knew it was at the end of work. It was the beginning of rest. Paul says, I'm being my departure, my analusis, my loosening from the burden is finally here. I'm ready to leave. Second, it was used to describe being released from chains or from fetters. You would lose somebody from chains or fetters. That was their, that's a departure, an analusis. 
Paul's sitting in a Roman prison with chains on his hands, chains on his feet, and he says to Timothy, the time of my unfettering has come. Right? I'm about to exchange the walls of this prison for the glorious liberty of the courts of heaven. That's how Paul viewed death. Third, the word was used to describe loosening the ropes of a tent. You would untie the ropes from the stakes and the tent would collapse. That was the onalusis, the departure. That's how Paul viewed death. This is just the collapsing of the tent, right? We're taking down camp, one last journey, and next time we set up the tent, it'll be where? Home. That's death for the Apostle Paul. And it was also used for unmooring a ship. You would untie the ropes from around the, the cleats next to the dock and you would throw the ropes on board the ship and the ship would leave one port for another port, one harbor for another harbor. You would onalusis the ship so that it could depart. That's how Paul viewed death, just setting sail. One last time. Timothy, he says, the proclamation is done. I finished what the Lord gave me to do. I've run my waste. I've finished my course. I've fought my fight. I've completed it. And now the time of my departure has come. Like an animal being released from the burden, like a ship being set free from the dock, like a tent collapsing and getting ready to be packed up and go home, and like being set free from a, a bunch of fetters and chains, I'm going. That's it. Now I ask you this question. Will you be able to say that at the end of your life? Are you running your race in such a way that when you get to the end that you're going to die well? Or will you get to the end and say, man, I have all of these regrets. Wasted time, wasted opportunity, wasted efforts. Friends, you and I spend our time and our talents and our treasures on things that will never outlast us, let alone get to eternity. And Paul could say, I've lived my life for the fight. I've lived my life for the course. I've lived my life for the race. I've run it. I've fought it. I've finished it. And now I'm ready to go home. Take away the burden. Take off the chains. Let loose the ship. Bring down the tent. I'm packing it up and I'm ready to go home. That's living well and that's dying well. And Paul died well. Everything in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is an expanded illustration and really an explanation of one sentence that he wrote in Philippians chapter 1. To live is Christ... And to die is what? Gain. You say that again? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that to live is you and to die is, oh, the end of a great thing? Death is gain. That's why Paul could say, hey, take off the fetters. Let her come. Take off the head. The sooner the better. Why? I finished it. I've got to the end of it. I don't think, to be honest with you, I don't think Timothy ever got to Rome. After that first offense, it, it usually did not take long for guys like Paul to be executed, especially in the midst of a heated persecution. I don't think Timothy ever made it to Rome to see Paul alive again. But he came, I believe he came, and Paul wrote, and he said, Timothy, I've lived well, and now I'm going to die well. That's good stuff, friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of salvation. Thank you that you have the ability to take our eyes off of this temporal globe and to fix them on eternal things. And we pray, God, that you would do that, that you would save us from spending our time and our efforts and our energies on things that are so fleeting and so temporary and so worthless and to fix them solely on Christ. That you would remove from us, God, every wicked way, every self-centered ambition and give us the grace to live well so that we might die well. So when we come to the end of our race, we can honestly say we're ready to depart and to go to be with Christ. We thank you for the blessing of salvation and thank you for that grace today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.